Good morning, church. How is everybody doing? Staying alive and kicking? Despite the challenges that we see out there, it's, it's, it's an actual blessing to, to be able to be here and uh, be able to address God's word. Um, I still have some good memories and I still have some good pictures and some good videos. And uh, actually, let me turn this on so that I can move around. It's being amplified now. Good, good, good. Now, let me, allow me to keep it. Allow me to keep it on. Uh, I hope you don't mind me keeping it on. Uh, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been already a year past since we made that trip. It was, it was a blessing. It was a blessing because uh, ever since I was asked to be that theological guy in the trip, it just put me to work. And, but it was a good work because uh, there were certain things that I was, that I was, uh, I was coming up with as I was reading the scriptures that I had not thought about before. So I was learning in the process. So that was, that was, that was awesome. And um, I still remember some of the shots that you were doing from the drum and, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. Church, it is a, a pleasure, it is a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, bring you some greetings from Southwestern Adventist University. And um, it's been uh, already, uh, I would say, 16 years, if I, if I remember correctly, if my calendar's still flipping pages, okay, uh, since we joined the faculty there. Uh, it's been a wonderful journey. Um, and yes, I've been teaching there, preparing young men and women for ministry. And um, an extra head pastor, just the chair of the department, and I don't know, some people have, have been saying congratulations. I don't know if, I be, if I've been upgraded or downgraded. Uh, I, just, I, I, just, I just tell the Lord, you know, use me as, I, as, he, as he sees fit. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm ready. I'm ready to serve him anytime. Anytime. Yeah, we've been, we've been privileged uh, in our department of theology. We've been very privileged because... For, wow, I don't know, over 10 years, uh, we've been having an employment ratio of our graduates that is about 95 to 100% of our graduates being hired. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not a, a huge graduating class every year. We, we, we get sometimes 10 graduating, 15 graduating, and all the time, all of them being picked up, being picked up. And, 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 and the Lord has been very, very gracious on that. Only this last summer, and you may wonder why, we couldn't hit the 100%. Uh, actually, it was, it was lower. It was about 50% or something like that. Um, and it was mainly because uh, COVID really affected uh, conferences, finances, and, and possibilities for employing our, our graduates. But other than that, it's been, it's been a blessing. It's been a blessing, and, and I praise God for, for that wonderful opportunity. This morning, let me invite all of you to turn with me in your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel, chapter 1. Go Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in that chapter 1 
of Daniel. Um, sometimes um, we wonder what is it that God's message is for us from the different uh, biblical uh, portions that we have. But one of the things that come to my mind continually is that in his word, God is continuously reminding us that we are the builders of our own destiny. And I don't know how many of you agree with me on that or concur with me on that, okay? Let me, let me just amplify a little bit more, okay? What we are determines what we do and vice versa, okay? What we are determines what we do. And sometimes we don't even realize that our own decisions today will shape our future here on earth and for eternity. We talk about us being in the hands of God and our future in the hands of God, and that is true. But at the same time, we hold some responsibility on that. And this concept, which may sound sometimes a little different in the minds of some individuals, this concept is so beautifully illustrated through the life of a great man in the Old Testament. This man wrote a book. And that book has been the source of encouragement, has been the source of faith, and at the same time of revival among peoples, communities, and churches. And I'm referring to the book of Daniel. Much has been said and read about the book of Daniel. But before we can pay attention to the content and the message of this book, I think we need to also dedicate a little bit of time to get to know the author. Unless we know the writer, the message may not be totally there. So let me talk to you a little bit about this Daniel, okay? Let me begin by saying, and keep your Bibles open there in Daniel, please. When you look at the Hebrew Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, find that those Hebrew Scriptures are three main groups of books. Books of Testament are organized, structured, in three main groups. You may have heard the names. One group is called the law. Torah, if you care for the Hebrew. Second group is called the prophets. Nebi'im. And the third group is called the writings, Ketubim. So 
these three groups, we got the entire Old Testament organized. And when you look at the law, which books are in the law? The five books of Moses. Bingo. That's easy, right? Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. Then we got the second group called the prophets. And in that second group, now we got all the prophets all the way from Isaiah to Malachi. With one exception, which some people find it quite disturbing. You want to wonder whose exception is that one? Daniel. Daniel is believed to be a prophet, and yet his book is not included within the prophet's purpose in the Old Testament. Here is scripture. Where is he located at? He is located among the writings. Historical books, wisdom literature, that's where he's at. And you wonder why? Because for the Hebrews, Daniel is not a prophet. He is a wise one. Because a prophet is someone who is trying to bring people back to God. And that was not Daniel's job as you read his book. Only a wise man is able to talk to you about your present and your future. And that is Daniel. Are you following? Is this, is this clear? So it's different. It is a little different. This Daniel is someone who was taken captive to Babylon at a young age and despite all the things that he went through, he did not allow captivity and other abuses or any other situations affect his connection with God. Ezekiel cited him as an example of a righteous man. So he's got something to tell us about faith, about remaining faithful to God. This is a man who lived to serve two world empires. Babylon on one side, Mid and Persia on the other side. What a character. You don't find that many in the, in the Bible. You don't find that many. This is a man who wrote a book that is partially sealed. He did not even understand that sealed part of it. Part of it was opened. And so, in the midst of all these circumstances, Daniel was able to build his life and his future in such a way that he became a blessing for his people, for the Babylonians, 
and even for the Persians. How can you and I build our destiny like Daniel? What can we get out of Daniel that can help us this morning be able to serve and be a blessing to our families, communities around us? So let us go to chapter one. I got three suggestions for you this morning. Let us go to chapter one. And how Daniel can help us out. He's actually providing us three suggestions. And the first one, Daniel tells us that we must acknowledge that God is in control. Even when we see our world falling apart around us, Daniel still tells us, sit tight, hang in there, God is in control. Now that's easy, said and done, right? Now let's check what Daniel has to say about it, all right? Because in the scriptures, from the very beginning, ever since man fell into sin, God said, or God indicated that man's life will have to be left in the midst of a great controversy. Remember Genesis 3.15? When God was talking to the serpent, and God told the serpent, I will, put, I will put enmity between you and the woman? Do you think that that enmity was only between the devil and Eve? And do you think that it was only done for that family back then? Oh, that's been our life ever since until this moment. Okay? And Daniel is coming back and is letting us know that despite this great controversy between good and evil, God's still in control. Let us look at it in the Bible. Please, open your scriptures. Chapter 1. Daniel 1. He begins his book with what I consider one of the most powerful statements you can get in his book. For a casual reader, or maybe a regular reader, it may not mean much. But for someone like you, who is trying to understand life within this controversy, it means a lot. Notice, how, notice what he says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And you may be saying, Pastor, but that's only a historical fact. Nebuchadnezzar came, besieged the city, and Jehoiakim fell. So Daniel begins by introducing us a conflict. And this is a conflict between two kings, Nebuchadnezzar, and Jehoiakim, two countries, two cities, Babylon 
and Jerusalem and Babylon overpowered Jerusalem and Jehoiakim fell. Daniel begins with the defeat of God's people. And you may be wondering, wow, in this great controversy, evil seems to be winning. But now let's check verse 2. Why is it that Jehoiakim fell into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar? Let's check it out. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, or Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into a treasure house of his God. Now, let me ask you, as you are reading this, why is it that Jerusalem fell? Why is it that Jehoiakim fell into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? Why? Is it because Nebuchadnezzar was stronger, more powerful, and Jehoiakim was just a small, weak king? Is that what it was? No. Clearly, verse 2 tells us that God delivered. He gave him to the king. So if Jehoiakim fell, it was not because he was smaller or less powerful. It was because God delivered him. Who's in control? Who's in control? You will also remember that on a previous occasion, the Assyrians, another powerful army, surrounded Jerusalem. Okay? Ezekiah was totally concerned. He came before the Lord. He presented all, all the curses and, and, and all, all the things that the, that the Assyrians were saying against Jerusalem and against them. And what happened that very night? Humanly speaking, Jerusalem had no power against the Assyrians. And what happened that very same night? Remember? God's angel, the angel of the Lord, came over killed 180,000 Assyrians. Next day, Jerusalem was okay. What didn't Hezekiah fall into the hands of the Assyrians? Who was in control? Why did, Je why did Jehoiakim fall into the hands of, Je of Nebuchadnezzar? God is in control. God is in control. But now notice one thing. It was not only the king who fell into the hands of the Babylonians, but it was also God delivering or giving up the vessels, the articles from the temple of God, which were taken into the temple of the Babylonian God. Now, here's a piece of information that Daniel is providing. He didn't have to. But he's just adding a little bit of additional detail here to help us understand what's going on. 
Daniel says that the articles that were taken from the temple of God were taken where? They were taken into the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God, right? Where was that temple located? Verse 2, where was that temple located? It was located in the land of Shinar. Is that meaningful? Again, for a casual reader, or for just a regular reader, it'll be just another name. But for someone who is getting acquainted with Bible history and trying to understand Daniel's message, this is not just a regular place. It is a very significant place. And so, so that you can see how God is in control despite the odds, Daniel is providing that little piece of information. Where was the land of Shinar located? Where was that land located? Okay. This is where we now need to look a little bit into our geography. How many of you are acquainted with the with the uh, geography of what is known today as Iraq, Iran, that place. Some of you are? Okay, great. Back in those days, as it is today, that land, or part of that land, was watered by two main rivers. One was the Euphrates. Does that sound familiar? Yes. The other one was the Tigris. Does that sound familiar? Yes. The Tigris was the river that supported Nineveh. Euphrates was the river that supported Babylon. And those two rivers were flowing down into the ocean. And they watered all that land. And that land was very clean, was very fertile. And that was called the land of Shinar. Eventually, when Alexander defeated the Persians, and conquered that piece of land, he now replaced the name Shinar for a Greek name. He called it Mesopotamia. Does that sound familiar, a little closer to us? Yes. Mesopotamia is not an English word. It's been anglicized. It's a Greek word that is anglicized. Meso means midst, middle of, Potemia means rivers. It is, the land, it is the land between or in the middle of two rivers. Very fertile. Beautiful. Okay? So, 
It is there where the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God was built. And it is there where he took now, or he transferred the vessels, the articles from God's temple into the temple of his God. But it's not only significant because of that little piece of geography. I'm, I'm giving you a little background here because I want to get you to another point. Why is this place located? I mean, significant. It is significant. Because if you go back to Genesis 11, it was exactly the same place where Babylon was initially built and a tower was constructed in the middle of it. Remember that name? Babel. Babel. Now, you may say Babel. I thought it was different than Babylon. No. It's the same place. Why the difference in name? Babel is Hebrew. Babylonia or Babylon is Greek. Same difference, Pastor. It's just like calling me Jorge in Spanish or George in English. Same difference. But you know why is that significant? Because this place, Babel, was built where the crossing of the Euphrates River was. And when you go back to Genesis 2, you'll remember that there was one river flowing outside or, or flowing out of the Garden of Eden that branched down into four different affluents. And one of those affluents was Euphrates. What is that telling you? That Euphrates used to water part of what was the Garden of Eden. And when Nimrod decided to build, it was in a place where the Garden of Eden used to be located. So we're, we're Harmony, faithfulness, was all dedicated to God. Now, Babel is constructed in opposition to God. Are you all with me? Are you following me? This is why Daniel is mentioning it. Pay attention for a moment on the name Babel. The name Babel means gate of God. Why is it called gate or entrance of God? Why? You do remember that Genesis tells us that the Garden of Eden used to have one entrance. And God placed a cherubim there so that nobody will have access to a tree of life. Nobody will have access to a source of life. Right? So now Babel is built on a similar place 
trying to let you know you couldn't get into the Garden of Eden, but you can get through us. And this is why the tower reaching up all the way to heaven. So now, Nebuchadnezzar, keeping in mind, keeping aligned with that idea, he's bringing God's articles into his temple because now he's going to say, it is not Yahweh, the one who's going to take you to heaven. It is my God who's going to take you to heaven. So God is saying, he was able to win, not because he was more powerful, but because I delivered. I'm in control. And even when evil seemed to be winning, in reality, it was the divine plan that allowed this to happen because God had a purpose. God had a purpose. It's in control. It's in control. Don't forget that. So, no wonder God dedicated four chapters in his book of Daniel to save one individual. Any good guess who that individual was? Nebuchadnezzar. And in the end, he got him. At first, it was, it was a, little, a little challenging, and the king was resisting, but in the end, he got him. He can get anybody. He can get anybody. There is no one who can be so difficult that God is not able to bring to him. Okay? But we must first allow God, acknowledge and allow him to remain in control. When we try to do things in our own ways, we may end up either failing, messing up, or if we make it, it's going to be only a temporary solution while God allows us for much long-term solutions. Number two suggestion. Number two. Still in Daniel 1, okay? Still in Daniel 1. In addition to acknowledging that he is in control, we also now need to understand that we have to make decisive and lasting decisions. And that's also a little difficult to do sometimes. But we must make decisive and lasting decisions. And we can only do that when we are willing to trust God enough in our lives. Now, notice this. Chapter 1 of Daniel, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 1, 3 and 4. The king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Okay? So now, there will be a selection of young men 
But these young men had to be from royal descendancy. Which tells us then that Daniel and his friends must have had some royal descendancy. They were not just any regular Jew happening to be there. They were special Jews. And then the Bible says in verse 4 that these young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Now, notice the selection. And notice the specifics in the selection. They had to have certain qualifications. Not every Jew or not every young man were qualified. Number one, physically, they have to be without blemish. Does that word sound familiar to you? It's a biblical word. And it appears in the Old Testament. Where do you find the term blemish related to or connected to? To the sacrificial lambs, correct? Yes. yes. The word blemish or without blemish is normally connected to the sacrificial lambs. That means no physical defects, correct? And so now these Hebrews that were being selected, they were not just simple Hebrews, they were sacrificial lambs that were to be presented for God's glory and God's honor. Okay? So they were going to be acting as sacrificial lambs because their decisions were going to be determining the future of others. So now, secondly, they were supposed to be great intellectually. Sorry. They were also supposed to be good-looking. And they were supposed to be trained in all sciences. So they were not looking for untrained individuals. These were individuals who have to have a bachelor's degree or maybe a master's degree. Who knows a PhD? These were learned individuals. And the only thing that the king was going to be adding to that education was the training in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. That's all that they needed to learn. And they had three years to do that. They got three years to do that. Now, let me ask you, why all that they needed to learn was the language and the literature of the Chaldeans? Why? What's so special about the language and what's so special about the literature of the Chaldeans that they had to be versed in it, 
in order to qualify to serve the king in his palace. Well, let me say this, or let me ask you. Throughout the book of Daniel, and especially between chapters 2 and 7, what was the language that Daniel employed and that his, his, uh, his friends employed to communicate with the king and everybody else in Babylon? What was the language that they employed? Remember, Daniel and his friends, they were Hebrews. So they knew Hebrew, right? Mother tongue. What was the language of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans? Okay, you can read it. So it was, it was a different language. But what was the language that Daniel employed and the one that his friends employed for communication purposes? They didn't use Hebrew. They didn't use Ugaritic. They used what? They used Chaldean, which was Aramaic. They used Aramaic. Aramaic was not Babylonian. Aramaic was not Jewish or Hebrew. Aramaic was the lingua franca of the time. Let me illustrate it in, my, in today's time, which happens to be the lingua franca of the world nowadays. It is English. You know English? or you understand English, you have no problem going anywhere in the world and communicate with people. Because English is a worldwide language in terms of communication for politics, for finances, and why not? English is your way to go. Back in those days, it was Aramaic the lingua franca. And that was the language that Daniel employed, that his friends employed, and that even the king Nebuchadnezzar used to converse with them. This is why Daniel's chapters 2 all the way to 7 were written in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. Because it was the communication with those kings. So then comes the question again. If Aramaic was all that they needed to communicate, why was it so important for the king that they would learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans? If all that they needed was Aramaic, and apparently they already knew it because they communicated from the very beginning with them. This is where we begin to notice that this literature and this language had a component that was religious. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because the king, Nebuchadnezzar, 
made two decisions, two moves, in order to change the faith and the religion of Daniel to the faith and the religion of the Babylonians. Two decisions, two moves. What was the first one? Daniel 1, please. Daniel 1. Daniel 1. Let's look at verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and for three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. First move, change the diet. Change the diet. And it was not because it was pork-related diet. I'm sure that it must have had some, okay? It is possible. I'm not saying it doesn't or it didn't. But there was another reason for that. And this is why Daniel reacted to that. And we're going to see that in a moment. Here's the second decision. Or the second move that the king made. Verse 7. To them, the chief of eunuchs gave names. So there was a change in names. To Daniel, he was given the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Why the change of names? Why? If all that he wanted to, for them was to learn the language and the literature, why the change of names? This is what we need to understand some meanings. What was the meaning of the name Daniel in Hebrew? It meant, God is my judge. But now, his name is switched to Belshazzar, which means, may Baal preserve my life. So instead of trusting in God, now he was being led to trust in whom? In Baal, the Babylonian god. Notice the name Hananiah, which means the grace of God. Now his name is Shadrach, order of Aku, another Babylonian god. So he was being placed in the order of Aku. Notice the next name, Mishael, which is very similar to a name that you already know. Mishael means who is like God? What's the other name? Michael. Yes. Notice the new name. Meshach. Who is like Aku? You notice the similarity? And the conflict at the same time? And look at the last one. Azariah. 
Yahweh has help. And now the new name is Abednego, meaning servant of Nebo. So now, why the change of names? So he's directing now the attention of those Hebrews from the true Lord into the new gods. So there is a religious purpose behind it. But what was Daniel's decision? And this is where the idea of making a decisive and lasting decision comes in. Because at this moment, having been selected to serve in the king's palace, right, at, right there at the king's court, that must have been one of the greatest opportunities any young man may have, may have ever dreamed. It's like you being asked to serve in the White House right next to the Oval Office, having the ears of the president, and you're talking to him. What a privilege that was given to Daniel and his friends. They had the ears of the king. But then that opportunity meant that they had to sacrifice or they had to compromise their faith in God. Are you following? It's like today, you may be offered a great job with a great pay, but you have to work on Sabbath. What would you do? You need a job, and that good salary is going to help you Stabilize your finances. What will you do? Take the job and sacrifice or, or, or compromise your principle with God? Or will you reject it? What will you do? This is what Daniel did. Notice what Daniel did. Verse 8. 1 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Now, if you allow me to translate this a little bit more literally, the, 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 the text says, Daniel gave to his heart not to defile. Why did he use the verb to give? Because the king has given him. So Daniel is reacting and he's saying, I'm giving to my heart. It's not the king who's going to give it to me. I'm giving it to, me, to my heart. That's why the same verb appears there. And while the king decided to give his own meals, Daniel decided, uh-uh. I'm not going to defile my heart with the king's meal. Why not? Why not? Notice the choice. Notice the choice that Daniel made. Okay? He requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Okay? And so the chief of the eunuchs, verse 10, got so concerned 
I am fearful for my head. Okay? And Daniel says, don't worry. Test us for 10 days. And just give us, verse 12, just give us vegetables and water to drink. Now, let me ask you. Do you think 10 days will be long enough for someone living out of veggies and water to show some better resemblance and a better, better nourished resemblance. Ten days. Would that be enough? I mean, I believe in being vegetarian. Nothing wrong with that. And I practice that as much as I could. But in as much as I believe that a vegetarian diet is awesome and is great, please allow me to say that I don't think vegetarianism has anything to do with Daniel's decision right here. Whether Daniel was vegan, vegetarian, or not, I have no idea. The Bible doesn't say it. But at this moment, that decision doesn't have to deal with his lifestyle concerning diet. Why is he choosing vegetables and water? Those two words take us back to Genesis 1. What is it that God created on the third day? He first separated the waters from the land, and then he made the veggies to grow from the land, and he gave them to man. When you read Genesis 1.29, what was the diet that God assigned to man? And not only to man, because if you read verse 30, that same diet was assigned to animals. They were to eat veggies. So what is Daniel doing? Daniel is saying, you're giving me your food that has been dedicated to your gods. I'm not going to eat from that because my God is not the one that you made up. My God is the creator of heavens and earth, and I'm going to eat the diet of the creator. Now, that was a very decisive and lasting decision. Why? How dare you reject Nebuchadnezzar's diet? If the very same eunuch was fearful for his head, just imagine a servant. And Daniel decided, this is all that I'm going to eat, so help me God. Are you following? What happened? What happened? This is my third suggestion. When you make decisive and lasting decisions, leave the results to God. Amen. 
Don't try to fix it yourself. Don't try to do something that you know, humanly speaking, you're not going to be capable of. Leave the results to God. He was asked to be tested for 10 days, according to verse 14. And the results are, verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh. And you can ask any nutritionist, can veggies and water make any change in 10 days in a person's physical body? Excuse me if I am very skeptical. I don't know that that will be the case. So it was God, the one in control, making it possible. Secondly, secondly, continue reading there. In verse 17, we read that God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Which is what God really wanted, wanted Daniel to have. And then, verse 20, in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. No wonder Daniel became the chief of all the astrologers and all the magicians, not only for the Babylonian kingdom, but also for the Persian kingdom. And then chapter 1 concludes, Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus. Let me finish. I just mentioned a couple of statements here. The greatest builder is he who builds for eternity, not just for the moment. Think about God and think about your eternal destiny. The greatest builder is he who decides not to compromise his principles for some earthly advantages. And let me just read a statement I found by Max Lucado. I don't know how many of you know or have read some of his literature. I found this statement quite significant. He says, real change is an inside job. Not outside, but inside job. You might alter things a day or two with money and systems, but the heart of the matter is and always will be the matter of the heart. And then he finalizes, society may renovate, but only God recreates. Let us continue 
trusting in the Lord. Allowing him to do the work in our lives. Trust him enough. And leave the results to him. He'll take care of us. May the Lord continue blessing you. May the Lord continue guiding you. And may this 2021, as we're just beginning it, be a very blessed and a better, greater one than 2020. God bless you all.